Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 20th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up at this hour of the Federal Drive, why self-awareness can be an important characteristic for today's leaders. Also, what your agency's inspector general says you need to get after. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First up, though, the Department of Veterans Affairs says its new electronic health record hasn't seen a total outage in more than six months. That's the good news. The bad news is it's still not meeting a high bar to run incident-free most of the time. That's led to VA employees giving the new EHR low favorability scores. VA is much further behind rolling out the same EHR as the Defense Department, which is nearly done with the project. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman is here to talk more about the latest in the rollout. Hey, Jory. Hey, Jared. So just how far behind is VA's EHR from the, the performance targets they originally had for it? Well, it's a little unclear because the VA has multiple measures of this incident-free time that they're tracking. What they've seen from the vendor in the matter here, Oracle Cerner, is that incident-free time under the vendor's control can vary between 87% and 97% of the time this year. Uh, And that is uh, an issue for a couple of reasons. Of course, it is a pain point for the VA employees that are using this system. Uh, They really just don't feel comfortable with it compared to the system that they've been used to using, which is the VISTA system that has been around for decades within the VA healthcare system. We heard from Kurt Del Benny. He's the VA's Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology. He's also their Chief Information Officer. He told members of the House VA Committee that as of September 30th, Oracle Cerner was meeting this incident-free time metric for about four of the past 10 months, so not a great number. To be sure, we're still experiencing partial system failures that impact the users. And that was Kurt Del Benny. He's VA's Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and their CIO. Um, and, and Jory, what, is, what does the department have to say about these latest problems? What Del Benny was telling the uh, committee is that part of the reason why they're in the situation with the, the incident free time not meeting these benchmarks is because VA is still in its reset phase. They have paused future go lives indefinitely until they address some of the more serious challenges with the system that they've seen so far uh, and that they are constantly doing all these updates. And Del Benny says because they're pushing so many updates through to the system, it's breaking certain functionality and it's just this pace of change that is resulting in all of these uh, incidents happening. It's a well-established axiom of software development that systems stabilize when the rate of change made in the system decreases. The rate of change is still very high resulting in more instances than we would like. And that was Kurt Del Benny. He says one of the things that's an issue here is that the VA is just requesting customization from Oracle Cerner that just none of its other customers have asked for. One key example here is just making that EHR interoperable with the VA's uh, consolidated mail outpatient pharmacy, the VA mails a lot of its prescriptions out to veterans, just considering how rural and how uh, remote some of these veterans can live uh, you know, away from a VA facility. And so that is just one of the incidents here. Del Benning just says that overall, VA is just asking a lot from Oracle Cerner. And just as it makes these changes to the core EHR system, it's introducing risk to that implementation. 
Ultimately, we anticipate that the system's performance will improve when change velocity decreases and enough time has passed to enable unanticipated defects to be found and addressed. From a technical perspective, one of the advantages of the reset is providing time for optimization of the system and associated technical processes. And again, that was Kurt Delbeni, the CIO for the VA. And Jory, we have seen dissatisfied lawmakers around this issue for, for quite a while now. What, what's, what's the latest from the kill on how this is going? Yeah, dissatisfied is definitely a way to describe it. Lawmakers have been really fed up with the limited progress that VA has had to show for this project. Again, considering that the DOD uh, is very nearly done with the same implementation of the same ER, of the same EHR, what we heard from uh, the Technology Modernization Subcommittee Chairman Matt Rosendale is that they shouldn't have had, even had to have had this hearing on this issue that they thought that this was resolved at this point. The very least we expect from a piece of software as it runs reliably when we launch it. The complexity and the rate of change within the VA should be no surprise to anyone, and this is no excuse for Oracle. That was Matt Rosendale. He's the chairman of the Technology Modernization Subcommittee of the House VA Committee. And we're talking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Um, Jory, what do we know about how VA employees feel about the new EHR so far compared to VISTA? Yeah, of all the metrics that I can bring up here, they are probably some of the most concerning. The committee brought up some research from a third party that was surveying VA employees that are using the new Oracle Cerner EHR. Only 26% of those surveyed agreed with the sentiment that within two weeks of them filling out the survey, the EHR was available when I needed it and that downtime was not a problem. Uh, 58% of employees agreed on the flip side of that, that the EHR was not always available and that downtime was a problem. And most troubling of all, only 10% of VA employees said that the new Oracle Center EHR enabled them to deliver high quality care to veterans. And where is the rollout at this point? It had been stalled, we know. Yeah. So in April of this year, the VA put a hold on all future deployments. It then entered this reset phase that we're still currently in. Uh, what we've learned from other hearings earlier this year is that the VA does expect sometime next summer that it will begin to resume its go-lives for this EHR. Uh, but that could clearly be a, a moving target just given where they are with uh, the current challenges. VA has spent about $4 billion on this project so far. They are halfway through a 10-year contract, and they have only gone live at five small and medium-sized VA medical centers. For some context here, full deployment would bring it to 170 medical facilities that are, uh, some of them are much larger and much more complex than the ones that they've already gone live at. And we, we mentioned earlier that DOD's deployment of essentially the same EHR is much further along. But I, I think people forget sometimes that DOD's initial phases of the rollout were, were pretty rough as well. And, and it, it, it took them some time to get their, their legs underneath them. Yeah, and VA officials are quick to point that out whenever they are on Capitol Hill that DOD did you know, have a, a uphill battle when it came to implementation for a while, and that eventually they kind of hit a cadence where they were seeing more and more go lives uh, go successfully. They feel that they might have a similar uh, structure to their implementation, that they will eventually get ahead of these problems and that they will be able to roll out not just one-offs, but do these in, in waves. And one key thing to look out for of whether this VA rollout is going to go smoothly at some point is that next March, 
uh, VA and DOD will go live with the EHR at the James Level Health Care Center in Chicago. It is a facility that is jointly run by both agencies. And for DOD, that would actually be its final deployment of the Oracle Cerner EHR. And, you know, in terms of hearing all these problems, it can be quick. It can be easy to forget kind of what VA is looking to get out of this in the first place. Del Benny reminded members of the committee that that interoperability piece of things is still so huge for VA that to having one single health record where service members, once they are no longer in active military duty status, that this is going to be a health record that follows them through the rest of their lives when they are then veterans. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed. Thanks, Jared. And you can find Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still ahead on the Federal Drive, what your agency's inspector general says you need to get after. That's next on Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. The Government Accountability Office gets all the attention, but the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, or SIGI, also has lists of management and financial priorities for federal agencies. Federal News Network's Tom Temin discussed the latest list with the chair of SIGI, the Interior Department's Mark Lee Greenblatt. Okay, so Siggy came up with this list, and I guess my question is, what are you adding here since there is an equal and some ways more comprehensive list from GAO, which admittedly gets more glory than Siggy? Yeah, well, this is the third year that we've done this. We do this every two years, and we are trying to add value uh, where we can. We have 74 IGs that are looking inside the agencies at waste, fraud, and abuse, and every year they're required, each IG is required to put forward their top management challenges for that agency. And so this is a roll-up of all of those, a comprehensive view across government. We think this adds value because it's from inside the individual agencies, and frankly, there is a risk of list fatigue, which is real. There's an old axiom in Washington that the first time you get sick of saying something is the first time that the public hears it. And I think that's an element of this is that we need to maintain a steady drumbeat of attention on these high risk areas to ensure that we effect positive change across the federal agency. Because one of the items on your list, and we kind of know this from decades of experience, procurement management is a problem for 37% of the agencies. And the Biden administration just came up with a better contracting initiative. So maybe they were listening. People do listen. I would hope so. That's the whole purpose of this, and that's the whole purpose of our top management challenges report that all of the IGs issue every year, is to shine a light on these. And, you know, these are big ocean liners, many of these federal agencies, and, and certainly when you're talking about the federal government writ large, it takes a long time to turn these things around. They don't turn on a dime. And so we're identifying, you know, these problems year after year so that we can develop some momentum toward affecting positive change. And if you look at some of the patterns of your reports and also of the GAO reports and even some others beyond that, there seems to be a theme often of a weakness of agencies in the ability to do their own oversight of programs. You see duplicative programs and one agency doesn't know whether the other agency is funding the same request from a state level agency, for example. We've seen this a lot recently. And so maybe the 
real issue is not that list, but how do you build up general program management qualities in the senior executive and in the more advanced ranks of the federal employees so that they can avoid these issues and that theme? Absolutely. And and I think that's a drum that we've been pounding on over the years is to develop the infrastructure inside the federal agencies to manage these programs. We're certainly seeing that in my office. Take, for example, at the Department of the Interior with respect to the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are huge amounts of dollars, huge programs that are either brand new or greatly expanded from small programs in the past. And so we have flagged that they need to build capacity, both at the ground level and at the senior ranks, as you're talking about, Tom. And that's a significant issue. And the fact of what you were talking about, where multiple grants, say, go to the same recipients for overlapping causes, that's called double dipping. We are seeing that. And we are writing reports on those types of issues to, again, shine a light on them so that the agencies can then take action. What's going on with pandemic response? I know that's been a big issue for SIGI. And, you know, roughly every two weeks, something else comes out from somewhere on how many billions were wasted on this SBA program or or that FEMA program, whatever. And will we ever get to the outlines of pandemic response? That is a huge endeavor. It is ongoing now. We are seeing a number of criminal matters moving forward in that regard. It's just a question of volume, just a sheer volume issue. But that's something we are attuned to. We are seeing it in unemployment insurance, in the Paycheck Protection Program, PPPs and idle loans. Uh, you know, We're seeing it across the board on a very large scale. And we are doing what we can to either bring those criminal matters forward and trying to change inside the programs, but also trying to refer it over to the federal agencies so that they can improve going forward. And that's one thing we're focused on now is shifting to a playbook on how we can help these types of programs in the future. We're speaking with Mark Lee Greenblatt. He's the Interior Department Inspector General uh, and for today's purposes, Chair of the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. And the whole underlying theme of the problem with pandemic response was speed. Congress made a political decision. Let's push the money out as fast as possible because people are starving out there. And the fact is that, you know, another month might have let some of the oversight mechanisms that are well known, they simply weren't invoked to come into place for these programs. And maybe some of the billions wouldn't have gone out in the first place. I think you're right. At the time, there was a, you know, a, a real tangible you know, panic about timing. And I think that's one thing that may be a lesson that we learn going forward in that these types of disaster type scenarios going forward, be it a pandemic or hurricane, you know, whatever it is, we can maybe implement some of those anti-fraud and accountability measures at the outset, which will help us in a significant way ensure that the dollars are going to the intended beneficiaries. Because there were some mechanisms that were just disabled and forgotten about from the financial response of 2008 and nine, and just wasn't there anymore. And people knew it wasn't there, but nevertheless, the programs went forward. Yeah, I think the mentality was get the money out as fast as you possibly can. You know, I understand the motivation. The problem is if you're in the anti-fraud business and you're trying to protect taxpayer dollars, that is a daunting prospect because getting the money out the door and trying to find the defrauded funds afterward is nearly impossible. It's called the pay and chase model where you pay and then you chase the fraudulent actors afterward. That's never worked you know, in, in any scenario. Yeah, you get a little bit here and there, but you don't get the bulk of it back. That's exactly right, Tom. And that's the problem. The pay and chase model, while attractive in a scenario like that where the motivation was to get the money out the door, which I understand – 
the problem is the pay and chase model after the fact just doesn't work. And uh, we see that in Medicare. We see that in a wide variety of other settings where there is a pressure to get the money out the door. But there's going to be a significant amount of risk there. And the policymakers need to come to terms with that type of risk and risk tolerance. And now we're seeing that was a lot. And I don't know that we want to do that again. And there's a long list here in your report. We could go through all of it. But the one I wanted to ask you about was financial management, a perennial, 39%. I guess that's the amount of agencies that have that problem. Do you have any sense of those 39% of agencies, how much of the money they represent? Because if it's DOD, then that's half the government spending. Yeah, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but it is a large volume of the federal government. I know in my office at the Department of Interior, this is a persistent issue, especially now with the Infrastructure Act and with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Those are enormous sums of money going out the door in the Department of the Interior, and that management is something that we have flagged repeatedly. We do see some progress, some pockets of progress. For example, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, they actually took financial management off their top management challenges list. You know, there are elements of growth and development and evolution in good direction. HUD OIG feels pretty good about that because they have been beating that drum for years. And so I think they've affected some positive change there. The concern is what you raised, Tom, which is that this is really prevalent in the big agencies that are issuing huge grants, huge contracts going out the door. This is just a persistent issue that we in the IG community need to be at the forefront of, of affecting that positive change. And this report dropped, you know, and presumably it goes to Capitol Hill. But for the past couple of months, Capitol Hill has been a weird hairball of conflict that has nothing to do with normal operations or normal procedures of their own. Did you get any splash from the report so far? Well, we usually get some traction with our key stakeholders. You know, we have uh, a number of oversight committees that we engage with directly all the time. Uh, and so we have a robust dialogue with them, you know, frequently, and, and, and we do discuss these things. And they appreciate it. This tees it up for them in terms of what legislation they can put forward. You know, they are trying to solve problems, and we work with them. We're, we're, we're happy to identify them and, and identify some thoughts on how we can address some of these problems. And so we have good partnerships with folks on both sides of the aisle, both houses of Congress and certainly the executive branch as well. And so I think we're, we're using this uh, as a vehicle to, again, affect that positive change that we've been talking about. Is it still fun to be an IG these days? <laughs> it's, uh, it's always fun to be an IG, Tom. Uh, no, it's hard. Uh, you know, it, there's no question about it, but these are important roles that we serve both at the IG level and in our staff. It's incredibly rewarding. We just had our SIGI Awards ceremony earlier this week, and Tom, it's amazing the work that's happening throughout the community, affecting positive change, you know, from everything from cyber stalking to cyber fraud, from veteran suicides to violent gangs, from the evacuation in Afghanistan to oversight in Ukraine. We have great work going on across the entire federal government. It's really inspiring. So yes, the answer to the question is that it is fun to be an IG and I, uh, I, I wouldn't give it up for the world. That's Mark Lee Greenblatt, the Interior Department's Inspector General and Chair of the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post a link to this interview along with a link to the SIGI report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, why self-awareness can be an important characteristic for today's leaders. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom.
Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. In for Tom. To be a good leader, you've got to know your people. But what about knowing yourself? Emotional intelligence is more important than ever in connecting with a diverse and changing workforce. So should it be considered when picking the leaders of tomorrow? That's the stance of Bob Tobias, retired professor from American University's Key Executive Leadership Program. He tells Federal News Network's Eric White just how vital emotional intelligence is for succeeding as a leader. My experience is that emotional intelligence is a critical ingredient for every leader's success, and particularly members of the senior executive service. And the five existing OPM executive core qualifications, um, the ability to lead change, the ability to lead people, the ability to be results-driven and exhibit business acumen and build coalitions, does not include emotional intelligence. OPM assumes that if you're successful with these five particular existing core qualifications and you reach your goals and objectives, that you automatically have emotional intelligence. But that's just not the case. It's I don't believe it's the case because the training for SES leaders doesn't include, for the most part, emotional intelligence. And the 3,000 students I've talked to over my 23 years at American University and asked them point blank, if these if leaders are successful with the five skill core qualifications, are they guaranteed to be successful as a member of the SES? And the answer unanimously was no. And what they say is missing is emotional intelligence. I believe that's the glue that's necessary to be fully successful over an extended period of time as an SES leader. Gotcha. Okay. And so, you know, if you are one of these leaders who find yourself not really feeling the connection with your employees, and it could be your lack of emotional intelligence, is there a way to start training your mind a little bit better to be more adept at what folks are feeling and how to reach people on a personal level? Well, The critical component that having emotional intelligence gives a leader is the ability to connect with the people they lead, the ability to engage with the people that they lead. And there's absolutely no no question about the fact that if I am willing, if I am able to engage with the people I lead, they will be more productive in achieving my goals and objectives. And emotional intelligence is really personal development. What it means is that I have the ability to manage both my own emotions and understand the emotions of the people I'm trying to lead. And the five key elements of emotional intelligence are self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. Now, these personal development uh, characteristics can occur when um, candidate development programs include the development of emotional intelligence. So there are actually programs out there already that look to improve that, but maybe they don't necessarily call themselves, you know, emotional emotional intelligence workshops or anything like that. Well, 
I mean, where I taught at American University in the key executive leadership program, we focused on emotional intelligence. Most programs, candidate development programs, do not include it because it's not required by OPM. It's not something that's that fits within the five executive core qualifications, so it's not generally available. And why do you think that is? Because it's hard, number one. It's a challenge to for it's a challenge for people to rethink the way they are engaging with others, so it's very challenging. But I think it's basically that OPM doesn't require it, so programs don't include it. And so that's why I believe OPM ought add emotional intelligence to the current list of executive core qualifications to insist that it be taught in candidate development programs. We're speaking with retired professor Bob Tobias from American University's key leadership executive program. So, you know, let's say OPM did add it. Um, how would you go about measuring that as an aspect or a qualification for entering into an SES program? I think it would be hard, but I think it can be done. And the reason it would be hard is because tests um, are hard to create that aren't in some ways biased. There are many tests that are on the market that are very good as guidance for how people can develop their emotional intelligence. But to use it as a criteria for for selection would be hard. But I think it's really necessary because the results are so clear. And the results are the more engagement that I have with those I lead, the more productive they are and the more satisfied the public is with the services that are delivered. Yeah. And you'd have to find a good judge of character to dish out those judgments, right? Because if you don't have emotional intelligence, it's really hard to tell if someone else does. Well, as I say, there are there are many um, evaluations on the market to measure emotional intelligence that people use um, to gauge where they are. So, for example, if uh, most of these you uh, 360, 360 degree of evaluations can measure the level of emotional intelligence. But as I say, they're not used for selection. So um, they're only used for self-improvement. So if I receive this 360 evaluation, if I choose, I can ignore it or I can act on what's in the evaluation. Now, to make that part of the selection process, they'd have to be refined. But I think it's so necessary because the results are so necessary to be successful over the long term. It speaks to the importance of emotional intelligence, because if you're a leader who doesn't necessarily have the same amount of skill sets that your employees have or your the, your cohorts have, you know, I'm thinking about just breaking it down into simple terms that owner of a restaurant doesn't necessarily know how to work the cash register. But most employees are OK with that as long as their manager respects and understands the tasks that they have at hand. Not only knows the tasks and understands the tasks, but has the ability to create the trust necessary for the re- relationship between the leader and the led. If I can create trusting relationships with those I lead, if I can create collaborative relationships with those I lead, I never have to 
to use the cash register. I can always trust the person who's doing it to do a good job. And it, the old carrot and the stick. And in this case, you're not necessarily using the carrot or the stick. You're sharing the carrot with your employee, right? <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right, Eric. Bob Tobias is a retired professor from American University, speaking there with Federal News Network's Eric White. You can find this interview on our website at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, the government's funded through the next few months, but the way Congress did it could make a final budget resolution even tougher. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom. The government is open on this short holiday week, and it'll stay that way through at least the first couple months of the new year. That's thanks to a continuing resolution Congress passed and the president signed late last week. But the way Congress went about it is going to make things complicated and maybe harder to pass full appropriations bills for 2024. Mitchell Miller is the Capitol Hill correspondent for our sister station, WTOP, and he joins us now with the latest from the Hill. And Mitchell, lots to talk about, but let's uh, let's actually start with the CR that just passed late last week or that the president just signed late last week. This uh, laddered approach is, is certainly unique, something we haven't quite seen before. Talk us through what the implications are and how it may complicate life down the road. Yeah, this had a lot of people's attention when it was first introduced. And actually, it came from a Maryland congressman, Andy Harris, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. They were trying to find some way that they could balance the conservatives with the more moderate Republicans in the House and try to figure out some way because a lot of conservatives do not like continuing resolutions, as you know. So this was they were trying to appease both groups. But bottom line for the federal agencies is that you've got this two step process, hence the name laddered continuing resolution, where you have these appropriations that are going through January 19th and then another set through February 2nd. Now, critics will say this only creates more opportunity, if you will, for more shutdowns and potentially more issues. Uh, And if you look at the two tranches, uh, you have military construction and veterans affairs Uh, HUD all being funded in that first January 19th group. And then the Defense Department gets more of its funding on February 2nd. Well, some people from the Pentagon have pointed out that this is really going to make things very difficult for them because they're already trying to plan around these potential shutdowns. And Mike McCord with the Defense Department, the chief financial officer last week, he stated that this just makes it more difficult for them to make any kind of long-range planning because they're always having to worry about the possibility of a shutdown. And of course, as he points out, that affects morale, it affects planning. And uh, what he would like to do, obviously, is see it more uh, the, the basic back to uh, regular order. Of course, that's what the House is trying to get to, but they just aren't getting there right now. And I think it's going to be really interesting when you have this what I believe will be a major clash between the House and the Senate when we get into January and into February. Uh, There could be a very good chance, actually, of a shutdown because they really did kick the can down the proverbial road this time. And what, what would be the source of that tension? Is it just that there are unacceptable items in the House appropriations bills? 
that's part of it. And also that the House really, in the view of Democrats, went back on the agreement on the debt ceiling where former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Democrats agreed on these certain levels. And then when McCarthy went back and eventually got kicked out by conservatives, uh, they said, no, we don't want that level. We want to go deeper. So they are proposing a lot of much deeper cuts in these appropriations uh, bills. And also, as you mentioned, some of these poison pills that are scattered around in some of these spending bills as well. So I think they are going to push really hard when we get to January because they kind of gave the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, this little honeymoon period and said, "Okay, we'll give you a mulligan here and you can do this CR right now. But when we get into January, we're going to really go hard on getting these spending cuts. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has made it very clear that Democrats are not going to go for any of that. So House Republicans are probably going to hit a stone wall with uh, Democrats in the Senate when we get into the new year. And I guess one of the oddities here is this this whole CR process will have extended 2023 funding levels, basically, not quite, but almost halfway into 2024. So if they want to achieve some set level of 2024 spending reductions, you would have to cut even deeper in that back half of the year in order to get where they want. Is that a right yeah, way to think that, about it? Yeah, that's that's a really good way to think about it. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to think about it in that way, but that's really where we're heading. And of course, uh, under that debt ceiling that I mentioned, um, you know, even uh, – if they get close and almost pass all of these uh, 12 appropriations bills, but they don't, and they don't hit the uh, April 30th deadline, which is under the debt ceiling, uh, to avoid sequestration, then they're going to hit a 1% across-the-board top-line budget cut. And again, that's something that the Pentagon is really concerned about, uh, as long as well as a lot of uh, Republicans and Democrats, particularly in the Senate, uh, who want to make sure that military funding continues to flow, uh, that could really uh, cause a lot of cuts across the board uh, for defense spending in the coming year. And while we have you, Mitchell, I wanted to make sure we talk a little bit about the uh, decision uh, on, on the FBI headquarters location in, in Greenbelt, Maryland, because I know you talked to both members of the Virginia Senate delegation about that this week. Is there still a chance that this may not be a done deal and then this saga will drag out further? Well, that's certainly the hope of the Virginia delegation. They are really roaring mad about this decision. And we all knew that when the decision was made that um, each side, one side was, of course, going to proclaim victory. In this case, uh, as they call themselves, Team Maryland, the Maryland delegation. And and then on the other side, uh, Virginia is just so upset about this. But more than just a we thought we had a better site type of back and forth. In this case, you have the Virginia delegation formally now requesting that the GSA's inspector general do a full review of this. And they point to the comments that were made by FBI Director Christopher Wray in a letter to the GSA in which he said uh, he had real problems with the fact that a three-member panel of the GSA had recommended the Springfield, Virginia site and then was effectively overruled by a political appointee within GSA. And so uh, Senators Kane and Warner have made it clear they are going to push and push hard on this. I don't know that it'll necessarily get reversed, but it will certainly stretch out 
how long this is going to be discussed. And that, of course, is going to delay whether or not funding actually potentially comes to, for the actual relocation to Greenbelt, uh, whether or not, you know, the, the shovels are going to go into the ground. And then there's a really an interesting twist related to, the, to this as well. Uh, House Republicans are actually upset with the FBI for totally unrelated reasons. Uh, they think that the FBI has uh, gone too far in terms of surveillance and have a whole list of uh, issues that they have with the FBI from a policy standpoint. And they have actually threatened to try to withdraw the money for the relocation because of those reasons. And what's interesting is last week, Virginia Congressman uh, Jerry Connolly actually indicated if the Republicans go ahead and try to hold up the funding for Greenbelt, he would be open to the idea of supporting that. Now, Senators Kane and Warner wouldn't go that far necessarily, but that just shows you to the extent uh, the argument is still going on, even though this decision came after literally years being being years in the making. And speaking of the prospect of punishing agencies for decisions lawmakers don't like, it looks like there's a bit of movement on breaking the logjam over military nominations uh, that's been in place for many months now by Senator Tuberville. What's happening there? Yeah, this is finally really coming to a head, and it's only taken, what, nine months? Since February, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has held these promotions up. And by the way, they have continued to rise. At one point, it was around 200 military promotions. We're now at the point where it's at more than 400 military promotions. Mm -hmm. And last week... After the continuing resolution was passed by the Senate, you would think that they would kind of wipe their hands of it and say, okay, we've, we avoided a shutdown. We're going home. But, but Republican senators included are so mad at Tuberville that they actually stayed on the Senate floor and tried again, as they have in the past, to individually bring up names, uh, for promotions. And each time he objected. And this went literally into Thursday morning to, to like two in the morning as they they tried to push him on this. And then, of course, the other big significant development, very significant, that could break this logjam is the fact that uh, the Rules Committee basically said they were ready for a change in procedure to allow all of these promotions to be taken up on block. In other words, they could all be taken up at once, which has never been done before. And the Democrats, though, they do need to get nine Republican votes to pass uh, to get over a filibuster. There are several Republicans right now who are so fed up with Tuberville's hold on all these promotions that they have indicated they may go along with Democrats, even though they really, really don't want to change procedure in the Senate. And it would only be temporary. But nonetheless, there's a lot of institutionalists that don't want to change. But I do think that this is going to come to a head in the coming weeks because Actually, if we get to the end of the year and to the start of the year, everything gets wiped out and they would have to start from scratch. Oh. So uh, that is really why that once again, it's the calendar that's putting the pressure on the lawmakers. They've allowed this to go on for so many months this year. But if they have to literally start over and then plus, let's not forget that we have a war raging on in the Middle East. We have the situation in Ukraine, as many of the people have pointed out, and just the hardship on um military families. It's not just the individuals whose promotions are at stake. They have to plan ahead, of course, to where they're going to live, where they're going to be reassigned. So it's been a real mess. And uh, there's certainly no love lost for Tommy Tuberville in the U.S. Senate right now. All right. WTOP's Mitchell Miller joining us from Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for bringing us up to speed. You bet. 57 minutes past the hour on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. 
For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. 